I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And I am thrilled to share with our great listeners uh, our new interactive constitution launched on Constitution Day and co-hosted by the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society, we're asking the top scholars in America to write about every clause of the Constitution, describing what they agree about and what they disagree about, so citizens can make up their own mind. And today we're going to do a podcast version of one of the great explainers uh, dealing with one of the most contested rights in the Bill of Rights, and that is the Second Amendment. Uh, in 2008, the Supreme Court ruled in District of Columbia v. Heller that the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to keep a handgun in his or her, her home for self-defense. Uh, lower courts are now grappling with the meaning of those decisions. And we have assembled the two top scholars in America about the Second Amendment uh, to discuss what they agree about what they and what they disagree about. Adam Winkler is professor of law at the UCLA School of Law. Nelson Lund is university professor at the George Mason University School of Law. Adam Nelson, thank you so much for being here, and thank you so much for joining our interactive Constitution. Happy to do it. Thank you, Jeffrey. Happy to be here. Wonderful. So let's jump right in. I want our listeners to check out your uh, debate online at constitutioncenter.org. But, uh, Nelson, let me begin with you. You and Adam had uh, the assignment of coming up with 500 to 1,000 words about what you agree about the Second Amendment's uh, text and historical meaning. Tell us what you agreed about. Uh, well, I think the main thing that we agreed about is that the Second Amendment originally had little or nothing to do with what we consider gun control laws today. It was really a federalism provision. Uh, it applied only to the federal government, and it was meant to stop the federal government from um, undermining the ability of the people to protect themselves against a potentially usurpatious government to come. Nobody knew what the new federal government was going to do. Uh, there were a lot of fears that it might become tyrannical, and uh, the drafters of the Second Amendment wanted to make sure that um, that the federal government would not use its various powers, which were much greater than under the previous Articles of Confederation, um, to oppress the people, and therefore it was stripped of its ability to disarm the people. Um, a lot has changed in 1791 in many ways, um, but because the focus uh, at the time was on the relationship between the state and federal governments, the framers and enactors of the Second Amendment had no reason to give much thought or any thought uh, to the proper extent of gun control laws in the states. The states were just left free to do whatever they wanted. Um, a lot of things have happened since then, um, but maybe Adam would like to add to what I've said. Thank you so much for that uh, statement and great summary. Adam, uh, first of all, do you agree with Nelson's statement about uh, what you agreed on? How can you amplify? I'll, I'll note by saying that you begin this fascinating explainer by saying that although 
modern debates about the Second Amendment have focused on whether it protects a private right of individuals to keep and bear arms or a right that can be exercised only through the militia, like the National Guard. This question wasn't even raised until long after the Bill of Rights was adopted. So tell us about about that and, and what else you agreed about the Second Amendment's uh, history. Well, that's right. Uh, I think, uh, well, I agree once again uh, with Professor Lund uh, and uh, his assessment of the early history and drafting history of the Second Amendment and what it was designed to do. Um, we also agree that the right to keep and bear arms is a long and well-established right and tradition in American law, whether under the Constitution or uh, elsewhere. The right to bear arms is very well protected at the state level. Uh, most uh, states, now 43 constitutional provisions protecting the individual right uh, to have guns for personal protection. And uh, even in the early uh, uh, 1800s, uh, really in the early 1800s, when the militia fell out of use, uh, there became a a sort of focus on self-defense. And the right to bear arms was uh, uh, fundamentally uh, sort of shifted in the way people understood it and its central values. Uh, And the right of self-defense against criminals became uh, a much more prominent uh, development in uh, the right to bear arms. Uh, and we also both agree on sort of the history of the Second Amendment in the Supreme Court. For many, many years, uh, the Supreme Court basically ignored the Second Amendment, didn't have a case for about 70 years, uh, and really left the question of what was the central meaning of the Second Amendment open to this debate about whether it was an individual right or whether it was a right that was only exercisable within the confines of a state militia. Uh, and it was in 2008 that the Supreme Court in the Heller case um, changed that, uh, that sort of attitude of the federal courts, made clear for once and for all that the Second Amendment does protect an individual right to bear arms. Uh, and I think both uh, uh, Nelson and I believe that that case was rightly decided on the merits. This is just fascinating uh, to me, and I'm sure to our listeners, that this amendment, which we think of as the source of so much disagreement, has so much consensus, at least about its historic meaning and legal development, among the two leading scholars. Nelson, I'm curious, you and Adam were kind of like constitutional framers in having to come up with a common statement. Was it hard to agree? Was there stuff that you disagreed uh, as you were drafting the, the common statement? What was the process like? Well, there was almost no disagreement, uh, a couple of very minor things, uh, but the first draft uh, was uh, changed almost not at all. Um, who, uh, Adam, who, who wrote the first draft, and, and, uh, and how, did that, how did you find the experience of working with Nelson? Well, Nelson wrote the first draft, and that's partly why there was so little to disagree with, because Nelson's history uh, and understanding of uh, the Second Amendment and its drafting uh, we're right on. Uh, it was right on, and uh, there is uh, no source uh, of substantial disagreement. Of course, we both knew that there would be areas where we would disagree, particularly about the scope of the Second Amendment, dealing with today's modern today, modern gun control laws and gun control controversies. Uh, but I think we reserved that smartly for the, our separate statements, where we could uh, talk a little bit more in depth about uh, where we think there are still open questions about the Second Amendment and where we might have some disagreement. Great. Okay, well, let's now turn to those disagreements, which are constitutionally significant, of course. Nelson, in your separate statement, you said uh, many things, including uh, the calling on courts to invalidate regulations that prevent law-abiding citizens from carrying weapons in public, um, from uh, burdensome bureaucratic obstacles and other regulations. Tell us about what current regulations you think are inconsistent with the Second Amendment. 
Okay, I'm happy to do that. But if I could just step back one minute to the previous topic, I think it might be useful for your listeners to know that although Adam and I uh, agree um, about a lot, uh, there remains a substantial body of opinion uh, uh, most uh, visibly articulated by four members of the Supreme Court that uh, the Second Amendment was originally meant only to protect the right of the states to maintain their militias. And I think Adam and I agree uh, that, that that's wrong, uh, but that, that opinion does exist out there among some pretty prominent people. You know, because cause you mentioned it, and it's an important point, let me ask Adam to amplify on that. Uh, Adam, do you think that the dissenters in Heller were, were wrong, and why? Well, I, you know, part of the story is why I think they're wrong is that I, I just don't think that their theory of constitutional interpretation is the way, the proper way to uh, understand constitutional principles. Part of what happened, I think, in one of the unique things that happened about in the Heller case was it was called really a triumph of originalism. Uh, not only because Justice Scalia, who is the foremost advocate of originalism, the idea that you interpret the Constitution uh, principally by lights of how it was originally understood when it was first adopted, um, uh, that uh, idea of originalism uh, was not only the basis of the majority's opinion written by Justice Scalia in the Heller case, uh, but also was uh, the basis of the dissenters' opinion in Justice Stevens uh, and his lead opinion for the dissenters, uh, and he argued that we should interpret the Second Amendment by way of the original meaning, and he focused on uh, the militia argument that um, Professor Lund has already mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast, that the general idea behind the Second Amendment was related to militias and was related to federal power and limiting federal power, and he thought that's where it should stay and should never move again. You know, that's not the way I think about constitutional law. Uh, I think that the Constitution embodies certain principles, and we understand those principles to change uh, and uh, apply in different circumstances, new circumstances than we did before. Uh, and I think the right to bear arms, a Second Amendment should be understood to be an individual right to bear arms, not solely because of the original meaning of the Second Amendment to the framers of the Constitution, but because the Second Amendment has developed a, a profoundly different meaning, a more forceful meaning centered on self-defense against criminals and personal protection uh, than it had when uh, the founding was developed, and that that's an idea that has become really entrenched in part of the American tradition. So part of the reason why I think the dissenters got wrong is just I think that originalism isn't the right way to go about interpreting the Constitution, an area where I think uh, Professor London and I will probably have significant disagreement. Well, on that score, since this is important, uh, uh, Professor Lund, uh, do you think the Supreme Court in Heller got it right as a matter of originalism? Well, on, on, their, on two of their main conclusions, they certainly did, um, that it is a private individual right and that its purpose uh, is to protect the inherent or natural right of self-defense. Those two conclusions, I think, are uh, clearly correct under an original meaning understanding of the Second Amendment. Some of Justice Scalia's arguments uh, getting to that conclusion were defective, um, but the overwhelming weight of the textual and historical evidence does support the conclusions. Can I ask Adam, uh, uh, I'll, call, I'll call you both by your first names if I may, um, Adam, uh, a, a follow-up on this. So the great interactive constitution that you contributed to allows users and visitors to do two things. First, to read common statements and separate statements by leading scholars like yours, 
But if you go to the landing page, you'll see that it also allows you to click on any right and to look at the historic sources, that is the revolutionary era state constitutions on which the framers relied. And if you go to the Second Amendment, as I'm doing now, and I want our listeners to do too online, you'll see that m most of the state constitutions are focused on not allowing federal standing armies to be unregulated and to completely disarm uh, the citizenry. It's only one of the state constitutions, Pennsylvania, that explicitly talks about an individual right of self-defense, that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves or for purposes of killing game. And Justice Scalia quoted that in his Heller opinion. Adam, was that out of context? And, and given the fact that most of the state constitutions seem more focused on state militias and standing armies uh, as a matter of framing our history, is it in fact clear that it was viewed as an individual right of self-defense? Well, I think it was, to the extent it was uh, an individual right of self-defense, it was a different kind of self-defense than we generally understand it to be right now. Uh, it was uh, a self-defense against federal tyranny on the part of states, that states could fight off federal tyranny. Um, that's not generally the kind of self-defense we're talking about when we say you have a firearm in your home for personal protection. It's generally not so you can protect your state from federal uh, uh, tyranny. Uh, it is that you can uh, exercise defense against a common criminal. That's not really the primary usefulness of firearms in the framing era. So it's not surprising that the framing era people, when they thought of a right to bear arms, didn't focus on that. Just like it's not odd that the founding fathers uh, didn't focus on, um, uh, say, for instance, whether corporations had constitutional rights. They just didn't have very many corporations at the time. It wasn't something they were super familiar with. Uh, and uh, the same thing with technology and other areas. You know, uh, the founding fathers didn't consider the Internet, too. We try to identify a principle in the Constitution that they did try to protect and try to apply that in the context of new technologies, new understandings. Uh, and maybe the self-defense principle that was in the part of the original Constitution was a much broader one about defense against federal tyranny. Um, uh, and today it's a more uh, narrow one, perhaps, uh, about protection against uh, common criminals. Uh, Nelson, how do you uh, respond to Adam's suggestion that the framers didn't think about self-defense the way we think about it today? And how do you believe that the amendment should be applied to take account of new technologies of uh, guns that the framers couldn't have imagined? Well, I, I, I think I disagree to some extent with Adam on this point. Um, I agree that the framers were not thinking about individual uh, uh, defense against common criminals and so on, primarily when they adopted the state constitutional provisions or the Second Amendment. Um, that was because they had no reason to be thinking about that. Um, but the concept of self-defense, and you can go all the way back to Blackstone for this, they understood the concept of self-defense, I believe, more broadly in a way that would encompass both defense against tyranny and defense against uh, you know, common criminals or um, you know, attacks from Indians or, 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 or whatever. Um, it, was, it was a broad concept. They just didn't have any reason to give much public attention to, uh, to, to, the, to, to what we usually call self-defense against criminals uh, because there was, uh, it was almost unthinkable to them uh, that the government would uh, impose uh, widespread, you know, onerous restrictions on that right. 
Adam, maybe uh, another beat on the history. Uh, in your uh, great book on the Second Amendment, Gunfight, the Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America, you say that the historical understanding changed and during the Reconstruction era, it became more of an individual right of African Americans in particular to defend themselves. Tell us about how the historic understanding of the Second Amendment changed and what the relevance of that is to our modern debates. Well, one of one an odd question that a constitutional interpreter might confront was, if you generally believe, like Justice Stevens did, that the Second Amendment was only designed to protect the militia and not create an individual right that would have any relevance for uh, against gun control, well, how do you cons- how, how do you interpret the Fourteenth Amendment, which part of the intent behind the Fourteenth Amendment was? Uh, which was adopted right after the Civil War to protect the fundamental rights of the freedmen and others um, uh, against state intrusion. How do you understand the 14th Amendment when we know that many of the framers of the 14th Amendment explicitly said that its purpose was to apply the Bill of Rights, including the Second Amendment, to the state and local governments? Uh, And part of that idea was about uh, very much about the Second Amendment and about guns. The KKK arose right after the Civil War as an effort to try to reestablish white supremacy. One of the things that was at the very top of the KKK's agenda and reflected in the black codes at the time that were designed to regulate the activities of the freedmen and the uh, former slave states, um, uh, one of their that agenda was to get guns out of the hands of African Americans, to disarm African Americans. Uh, and they went out at night on raids not just to terrorize black people, but also specifically to get their guns, to stop them from being able to fight back against the reestablishment uh, and re- reaffirmation, perhaps, of white supremacy. And the framers of the 14th Amendment were aware of these efforts to disarm African Americans and thought that it was important that African Americans be able to have firearms for personal protection against marauding white racists, such as uh, the Klan that would arise uh, soon thereafter. So uh, a part of the understanding of the framers of the 14th Amendment, uh, they, the way they thought the 14th, they, the way they interpreted the Second Amendment was to protect an individual right. So uh, uh, the, it's an interesting uh, and perhaps odd idea to think that the 14th Amendment may protect the right to bear arms for individuals in a way that's even broader than the Second Amendment, simply because the uh, original understanding of the 14th Amendment had a different understanding of the Second Amendment than perhaps had the original framers of the Constitution did. Absolutely fascinating. So as I summarize the debate so far, both uh, both of you, uh, Adam and Nelson, think that the Supreme Court was wrong, both in District of Columbia and Heller and in McDonald versus Chicago, which held that the Second Amendment uh, rights were not incorporated against the states, in other words, didn't bind the states. But you disagree about the scope of the amendment and the kind of regulations that it should uh, permit. Um, and Nelson, why don't we turn to that point? And in your separate statement, you do note uh, uh, several uh, regulations that you think violate the Second Amendment. Tell us about those. Well, uh, maybe I should just begin with, the, the mo- with what I think is the most important one as a practical matter, uh, which is the right to carry arms in public. Um, the Second Amendment protects the right both to keep arms and to bear arms. And once one takes seriously the right to have arms to protect yourself against criminal violence, um, it doesn't make any sense uh, either in terms of the text of the Constitution or in terms of practical reality uh, to say that people cannot carry weapons in public. The overwhelming majority of violent crimes happen in public 
um, and that's where people most need to be armed. In addition, it so happens that we now have a tremendous body of data indicating that it is not uh, dangerous as a social matter uh, to have uh, people freely be able to carry weapons in public. There are now only a handful of states that put uh, severe restrictions on that right, um, and they do not have lower crime rates than the states that, uh, like my own state of, <clears throat> of Virginia, uh, that, that allow virtually all law-abiding citizens to carry a weapon in public. The courts, however, um, have not yet um, resolved um, the question of whether that's, that right is constitutionally protected. The lower courts have not. There's a, a split in the circuits. Most, most of the circuits that have considered the question have held that, that uh, severe restrictions uh, on the right to carry weapons in public are constitutional. I think those decisions are wrong, uh, and I hope the Supreme Court will go the other way when they finally take a case. Thanks for that. Adam, do you uh, agree uh, with Nelson or not? Well, I would say that Nelson and I definitely disagree about the scope of the Second Amendment generally in terms of how it applies to today's uh, gun control laws. One thing I think in my reading of the history is that uh, gun control is as much a part of the Second Amendment as the right to keep and bear arms. Uh, that the text of the Second Amendment refers to a well-regulated militia. The framers understood that uh, the people should be armed, the people who made up our citizens' militia, but that the militia needed to be well-regulated. They understood that guns were something that required training, discipline, uh, and perhaps uh, significantly more regulation to ensure that they're used safely uh, and that public safety was enhanced, and that the founders also had gun control laws. Uh, they didn't call them gun control laws, but they um, had laws re requiring people to own firearms as part of militia service. They did surveys of these arms by going door-to-door. -door. They had gun registries for militia members. They also banned people who they didn't trust from having weapons, such as African-Americans and slaves. Um, there's a long history of gun control in the founding era, uh, and it extends all throughout American history. And some of the restrictions that... Um, that Nelson talks about in terms of carrying weapons concealed uh, on the streets. Some of our earliest laws regulating and prohibiting concealed carry of firearms come from uh, our southern states in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s uh, when these kinds of laws became quite popular in the South and the Midwest uh, as a way, again, of trying to reduce violence in public. I think there are certainly big questions about uh, uh, about the right to keep and bear arms in public, and whether you have a right to carry firearms concealed, and the Supreme Court hasn't given us sufficient guidance uh, to know exactly how it's going to rule on the Second Amendment and whether it protects your right to carry a gun in public. Nelson, what is your response to Adam's claim that concealed carry laws date back to the framing era, became popular in the 1820s, and therefore uh, that the, the, the framers would have uh, held such restrictions? Well, I don't think that he said that they go back to the framing era, and I don't think that they do. Um, I, th I think you have to make a distinction between um, regulations that really have to do with the militia, like the, the old laws requiring uh, citizens to keep arms that they'll be useful in the militia. Um, th those are probably uh, perfectly constitutional under the Constitution. What the Second Amendment has to do with is uh, denying or, or infringing on the right the right to keep arms, um, and so it's it's really 
laws that deprive you of the right uh, to to have uh, weapons uh, that um, that that are constitutionally uh, problematic and in many cases simply unconstitutional. Adam, what do you think of that line that Nelson is drawing? I think actually that the line that Nelson draws between regulation of the right and prohibition or destruction of the right um, is actually a really important one, the one that has uh, really been threaded through the history of the right to bear arms um, in judicial decisions dating back uh, 150 years. Um, Decisions that, uh, remember, while the Second Amendment has only recently been reinvigorated by the Supreme Court, the right to bear arms as a constitutional matter under state constitutions uh, has been very vibrant. And while you were right, uh, Jeffrey, earlier to point out that some of the original colonies of the founding era didn't protect an individual right to bear arms in quite the same way we understand it. Um, uh, over the last 150 years, a lot, all courts have interpreted those state court decisions, uh, state court provisions um, consistently to protect an individual right to bear arms, and they've generally said that you can regulate a right, you just can't prohibit it, can't prohibit its exercise. Uh, and that creates a lot of leeway for lawmakers to uh, adopt Uh, effective gun control laws without fear of the Second Amendment. Nelson, what sort of gun control laws do you think are consistent with the Second Amendment? Well, I'm always a little hesitant to, uh, you know, to to, to off the top of my head uh, um, make decisions about particular cases without knowing, you know, all the details and the arguments. But I, I certainly agree that that lots of gun control regulations uh, uh, must be constitutional. Uh, just to take an extreme example, uh, the prohibition on the private possession of nuclear weapons seems to me obviously constitutional. Um, when you get down to particular uh, statutes, I think you you have to uh, you have to look at the particular statute, uh, how it's drafted, uh, what its purposes are and what its effects will be. Uh, So uh, I think that the the laws in those states that virtually, for example, virtually prohibit most and almost all law-abiding citizens from carrying weapons in public uh, are pretty clearly unconstitutional, I think. Another example of laws that I think are pretty clearly unconstitutional are laws that really could not be expected to have any significant social benefits and are really adopted for um, purposes of political grandstanding. And in that category, um, I would put uh, most most of the statutes that I've seen that deal with prohibitions on so-called assault weapons, uh, those statutes typically uh, just pick out certain semi-automatic weapons and say they're banned while leaving uh, perfectly equivalent or almost perfectly equivalent uh, other uh, weapons uh, in circulation, and it's just done to make a political statement, um, kind of like a law uh, forbidding the use of words with a French etymology or requiring that French fries be called freedom fries. Um, that's just political grandstanding if any such law were, were adopted, and I think it would be clearly unconstitutional, and so are these so-called assault weapon bans. Uh, Adam, do you uh, agree or disagree? Well, I think the assault weapons ban, it, it, this is one of the top items on the gun control movement's agenda. It was part of President Obama's list of three major gun control reforms that he proposed after Newtown, uh, and it's been the subject of legislation in several states since. 
uh, where gun control advocates have been successful in getting laws on these so-called uh, assault weapons, assault rifles, uh, enacted into law. Um, I think these are actually bad public policy, these laws, personally. Uh, assault, the so-called assault rifles are really just a category, a subcategory of uh, other rifles that are equally lethal, that have shoot just as many rounds of ammunition um, uh, of the same size and the same quality. Um, uh, and so I don't think it actually does much to advance crime control or uh, enhance public safety. Um, I would say that so far, at least, these laws have been consistently upheld by the federal courts. Uh, just a week before we, we did this recording, um, uh, the court, Second Circuit Court of Appeals, the federal court uh, that oversees New York and Connecticut and some other states, uh, upheld bans on assault weapons in both Connecticut and New York uh, and under the Second Amendment, arguing that while these firearms are common and common use and thus protected by the Second Amendment, um, uh, that uh, the bans on these weapons do enhance public safety uh, and do move the ball further down the road. Uh, it'd be interesting to see. Uh, I don't know if uh, Nelson would predict it. Um, uh, be curious to see whether the Supreme Court is going to take a case on assault weapons. Uh, and if it does, maybe the Supreme Court will provide more clarity for the lower courts in trying to figure out which laws uh, undermine the Second Amendment and which laws should survive Second Amendment scrutiny. Nelson, if the Supreme Court takes this uh, Second Circuit case, do you think it would uh, uphold or not bans on semi-automatic uh, assault weapons? Um, I, I long ago got tired of making a fool out of myself by predicting <laughs> what the Supreme Court will do. Very wise. Um, so I think I'd rather confine myself to thinking if they if they uh, if if they reach the correct result, it will be to strike these statutes down. Well, let me ask you then uh, a more specific question about the court's uh, holding. Uh, in Heller, Justice Scalia famously said, uh, the right to keep and bear arms is not unlimited. For example, concealed weapons prohibitions have been upheld under the amendment or state analogs. The court's opinion should not be taken to cast doubt on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. Do, first of all, do you agree with Justice Scalia that those examples are uh, consistent with the Second Amendment? And what, what, what's the implication of that uh, for future cases? Well, I don't know what the implication is for future cases. I, I think those were, uh, those were irresponsible um, uh, dicta, what lawyers call dicta, which is meaning uh, remarks outside the scope of the case. Uh, they were just irresponsible commentary, unsupported by arguments or evidence. Um, and I hope that uh, the court will not regard them as binding in the future. And if cases come up under uh, any of those categories that that uh, that, that Scalia's opinion provisionally approved, uh, they'll that they'll get briefing and arguments and evidence and decide it on the merits, not on the basis. Uh, uh, of this kind of uh, uh, unsupported commentary in an earlier opinion. Adam, what do you make there's, of... There's authority for doing that in Heller itself. Um, there's a footnote in an old case um, uh, that uh, seems to be inconsistent with Heller's holding, and Scalia just dismissed it as dicta that he wouldn't follow. I think the same should be done with the dicta in his opinion. Very interesting indeed. Um... I was going to ask Adam what what you make of what Nelson calls Justice Scalia's uh, dicta and what its implications are for future cases. 
Well, it is dicta in the sense that it wasn't absolutely necessary for the holding of the case. And we teach every law student in their first semester of law school to differentiate between the holding of a case, the facts and reasoning that are absolutely necessary to decide that case, uh, and the dicta, which is just sort of the uh, superfluous explanation uh, that might not carry on to the next case. As, uh, uh, as Nelson well recognizes, in the Supreme Court, the distinction between holding and dicta gets blurred very easily, uh, and lower courts generally treat every word, comma, or phrase uttered by, the, by a majority opinion of the Supreme Court uh, as uh, a rule to follow. And that's basically what's happened with regards to the paragraph that you cite uh, from Justice Scalia's opinion that uh, suggests the constitutionality, at least, of a wide variety of gun control laws. Indeed, the majority of gun control laws fit within those categories. Uh, and uh, that's partly why, perhaps, uh, we've seen that since Heller was decided, there have been hundreds of lower court, federal court decisions on the scope of the Second Amendment, and the vast majority of these cases, maybe 98, 99 percent, have upheld the challenge gun control laws. So I think what Heller's really getting at, uh, whether it's dicta or not, is a principle that's very deeply rooted in American constitutionalism, which is you do have a right to keep and bear arms for your personal protection, uh, but lawmakers have wide leeway to regulate that right so long as they don't go so far as to destroy it. Nelson, what do you make of these post-Heller cases? Uh, Adam says that most of them have upheld uh, regulations. Uh, one that didn't was a Seventh Circuit case where Judge Posner struck down an Illinois law that prohibited the concealed carry in public of a loaded, uncased weapon. Tell us about that case more in Madigan and how other lower courts have approached the question of concealed carry and how you think it should be resolved. Well, uh, Moore versus Madigan didn't deal with concealed carry. It's important to, to distinguish. There's there's what's called open carry, which is carrying a uh, a weapon visible to other people, and there's concealed carry, which, as it suggests, means concealing it. Um, the dictum in Heller dealt only with concealed carry, and Illinois basically prohibited almost everybody from carrying either concealed or openly. And um, Justice Posner, who hates Heller and thinks it's completely wrong, um, did what uh, lower court judges are supposed to do, uh, which is faithfully follow the guidance in the Supreme Court's opinion. And he concluded that the logic uh, of, concluded correctly, I think, that the logic of the Heller opinion um, did not permit the states to prohibit all forms of carry as they had uh, been doing it in Illinois. Adam, so as I understand it, then the Illinois law prohibited any carry, whether open or concealed, and Judge Posner struck it down. Do you agree with Judge Posner or not? Well, it's certainly, uh, judging from the text of the Second Amendment, you'd have to understand the right uh, to have a firearm extends in some way, shape, or form into the public realm in at least some circumstances. Uh, it is a right to keep and bear arms, and uh, you don't really bear arms uh, of a firearm when it's in your own home. We generally think that does mean take it outside into the public. I still think that leaves uh, great questions to be answered about how far that right goes uh, and what kinds of limits can be imposed on that right in the interest of public safety. The court has traditionally uh, recognized that uh, a right that you have, that, uh, like the freedom of speech or the right to privacy, you have it in both your home and out in public, but it's much more limited out in the public sphere than it would be in the private sphere of your own home. Uh, and we recognize that uh, for a lot of rights. 
So I imagine that same principle would have some effect on the Second Amendment, whether it goes so far as to say that states can do as some states do and, and effectively ban anyone from con- carrying a concealed weapon if they haven't been personally um, challenged or personally threatened by a stalker or otherwise. Uh, I think that remains to be seen, but so far the courts have generally upheld those laws. Um, Nelson, we've talked about uh, assault weapons uh, ba- rifles, uh, bans, which uh, you, you think should be struck down. You say the courts should invalidate regulations that prohibit law-abiding citizens from carrying weapons in public, and you don't like the burdensome bureaucratic obstacles which frustrate the exercise of Second Amendment rights. What are other regulations coming down the pike that you think are inconsistent with the Second Amendment and should be invalidated? Um, I, I think as time goes on, as I said earlier, I think the, 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 the bans or near bans on public carry are probably the most significant. Um, I think in those jurisdictions that um, re- want to resist Heller and McDonald, uh, like uh, like D.C. and Chicago, uh, the temptation is going to be to uh, to really focus on the bureaucratic obstacles and create so much difficulty in exercising your rights that uh, that 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 will discourage people from doing so. And we've we've seen that happening both in the District of Columbia. Uh, and in the city of Chicago, they adopted complicated new uh, laws after they lost uh, their cases in the Supreme Court. I think those are the most important ones. Um, I don't want to endorse everything else that, that the states and localities have done without knowing exactly what they are, uh, but, but certainly uh, I, I agree to Adam, with Adam to this extent that many uh, Many uh, regulations of firearms uh, will probably turn out to be permissible under a uh, under 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 an appropriate legal analysis. Um, this is fascinating. So, Adam, just to hone in on the area of your disagreement, tell us your c- considered thoughts on the constitutionality of other concealed carry laws that are pending in the lower courts, and also on the so-called bureaucratic regulations that Nelson objects to. Right. Well, there's a whole, first of all, we should understand there's a whole uh, a whole lot of const- of constitutional gun control laws. Um, uh, we've talked about a couple that have been upheld by the courts that are uh, I think are the most troublesome. Things like assault weapons bans and uh, restrictions on concealed carry that effectively make it impossible uh, for the average citizen to carry guns in public. Those are I think we'd agree are two of the most uh, difficult of the big issues of the day confronting us. We probably also agree that there's a whole bunch of areas where uh, the law can regulate. Uh, bans on felons possessing firearms. Uh, although one of the interesting things here is, uh, can you really, um, should we ban all felons from ever having firearms? When I refer to felons, of course, I'm referring to people who've served their sentence and have been reintroduced to the community, um, but are still considered felons because of their felony convictions. Um, should uh, every felony be pro- every felon be prohibited from ever possessing a firearm, uh, including someone who is convicted of nonviolent crimes like obstruction of justice or perjury? Um, uh, there's also some really interesting cases coming up that really pose some interesting challenges uh, about whether you can challenge uh, lifetime gun bans on things like felons and mentally ill people from ever having guns. Uh, whether you can challenge those as applied and get an individual exception to those laws because you can prove to the court that you're not a danger anymore. Um, Those kinds of cases could really uh, 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 inundate the federal courts 
if we start seeing a lot of people who've been prohibited from possessing firearms, um, if they're entitled to a federal court hearing to try to show that they are no more, no longer um, uh, an unsafe person, something that's a, a difficult thing to imagine how they're going to show, but courts have uh, opened those courthouse doors for such challenges. Very interesting indeed. Nelson, as you listen to Adam, uh, you've, you've agreed about a lot about its history. How would you specify the most significant areas of disagreement? What are regulations that he thinks are consistent with the Second Amendment that you think are not? Well, it's just to take an example, uh, the federal ban on the possession of firearms by felons, um, I think, has applied to violent felons. Um, it's constitutionally unproblematic, um, although I also think that, 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 that people who've shown that they don't any longer have a proclivity to violence should be able to get an individualized determination uh, and get their rights restored. Um, but with respect to nonviolent felons, I think it's unconstitutional to take away their Second Amendment rights. Um, just take the example of Martha Stewart, who was convicted of insider trading and lost her, for the rest of her life, lost her right to uh, possess a firearm. Um, I believe that was unconstitutional. It would have been made more sense to deprive her of her First Amendment rights to free speech since insider trading uh, is, is a crime committed with speech, not with a firearm. And no one would think of, of, of depriving her of her First Amendment rights. She shouldn't be deprived of her Second Amendment rights either. Uh, that's very helpful indeed. And Adam, as you listen to Nelson, what are uh, regulations that you think are constitutional and he thinks should be struck down? Um, well, that's interesting. I'm not sure what exactly uh, Nelson would uh, uh, want to see struck down that I would want to see uh, upheld. I think one of the interesting things that's going to really sort of confront us in the future um, uh, is questions of uh, how, how, do we, uh, how do we approach the Second Amendment with questions of technology. Um, can we stop the production of new types of firearms that might be more effective for self-defense? Um, uh, but uh, might be difficult for uh, other reasons. Um, can we, uh, you know, are firearms that are in common use, like uh, high-capacity magazines, which are basically um, uh, magazines for firearms that carry 10 or more rounds of ammunition, uh, are those limits constitutional? That, that's also been bubbling up through the federal courts these days, and we're likely to see a decision on that soon. Um, we might disagree on whether uh, we should have bans on guns in sensitive places. Uh, many people in uh, the uh, gun, many gun enthusiasts believe that uh, it's better to have guns in places like uh, schools uh, and other places where you might feel threatened um, than it is to restrict guns in those places. Um, and so that's a battleground. Maybe we might disagree on that. I personally don't want to see guns on college campuses, um, but uh, uh, but maybe um, uh, uh, maybe Nelson would feel otherwise. But I think I think what we show is that you can agree on the fundamentals of the Second Amendment, that there is a right to bear arms. I have some disagreement about the scope of gun control laws, but that anyone who seriously studies the history has to recognize that the Second Amendment is not an unlimited right. It's not a libertarian license for anyone to have any gun they want, uh, and that there is significant government leeway to regulate. Uh, at the same time, it is a constitutional right, and government shouldn't take that uh, leeway too far and uh, destroy the rights of, uh, fundamental rights of Americans. Well, this has been a fascinating debate, and it's time, gentlemen, for closing statements. I'm going to ask you, uh, Nelson, 
simply, uh, what was the Second Amendment intended to achieve, and how should it be applied today? The Second Amendment was uh, was designed to protect uh, the people's right to self-defense, and uh, it is a private and individual right uh, belonging to American citizens, and it obviously is going to have to be um, uh, reconciled with the government's legitimate interest in public safety, uh, just as the First Amendment gives us rights that um, can be misused. Um, and the courts in both cases uh, have to develop a jurisprudence that, uh, that preserves the right uh, without turning it into a kind of absolute that would lead to absurdities. Uh, they've, the, the Supreme Court has spent many decades uh, assiduously doing that with respect to the right of free speech. Um, even if one agree, disagrees with particular decisions, I think the important thing about that body of law is that they took the right seriously as a valuable right. Heller and McDonald suggest that the Supreme Court has finally recognized that the Second Amendment right is also a valuable right deserving of protection. And if the courts in the future uh, treat it with the same respect, the same care, and the same scholarly attention that they've given to the First Amendment, uh, I, I think whatever disagreements one might have with particular decisions uh, will end up with a better body of constitutional law. Thank you so much for that closing statement. Adam, uh, what was the Second Amendment intended to achieve, and how should it be applied today? Well, I think the Second Amendment was designed to primarily as a measure of federalism, to restrict the federal government from uh, invading the states and tyrannizing the states, um, but that the principle uh, embodied in it, uh, a right of the people to keep and bear arms, uh, has evolved and changed over the course of American history. And it now is much more about personal protection than it is about uh, a fight against uh, tyrannical federal government. Um, and the way to understand the Second Amendment is that it, uh, we must understand both parts of it. Uh, the part that says the right to keep and bear arms, uh, that's an individual right, the same kind of language we see throughout the Bill of Rights. Uh, the Fourth Amendment talks about the right of the people. The First Amendment talk, talks about the right of the people. Um, uh, we know that there is uh, an individual right in the Second Amendment. But we should also pay attention to the first part of the Second Amendment that refers to the well-regulated militia. The militia was just the common citizenry that would be called to serve in the event of a, uh, of a military uh, attack, and it has a principle of regulation, of well-regulated. That principle, too, has evolved, and our regulations today are far different than they were in the founding era, but they reflect that same general sense, that we can have an armed populace, but that means that we must have regulations designed to protect us and enhance public safety. I think that's the tradition of the right to bear arms uh, in America. I think it's the basic idea behind the Heller case. Uh, and I think it's why we're going to continue to see both the right to bear arms affirmed by federal courts, but also most forms of gun control that stop short of really depriving people of the ability to defend themselves in their home um, upheld. And thank you so much for that closing statement. Uh, thank you both, Adam Winkler and Nelson Lund, for an unusually civil and illuminating discussion of one of the most contested constitutional questions of our time, both in your wonderful contributions to the interactive constitution and in this podcast, you've provided a model for uh, civility uh, that has educated all of us in the process. And I'm very grateful to both of you. Thank you for joining. Thank you.
Thank you. Today's show was engineered and edited by Jason Gregory. It was produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Daniele Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, at constitutionctr. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, a new podcast featuring conversations and debates presented here at the Center, across from Independence Hall in Philadelphia. The most recent episode features a conversation with Anne-Marie Slaughter, president and CEO of the New America Foundation, about gender and work in the United States. We the People is a member of the Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com backslash Panoply. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.